following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Let's just quickly recap where we're up to here. We've looked so far at God the Father. We've talked about the identity of the Father. And then last week we looked at Jesus. We talked about Jesus not in his earthly life, but in his heavenly existence. We took this big zoomed out view of Jesus uh, as the one who has existed from eternity past in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, the one who made all things with the Father and the Spirit through whom all things were made, the one who's upholding all things at every moment, and the one who stands at the end of creation as the goal of all things. Everything is moving towards Jesus, and one day it's all going to be wrapped up in unity under the feet of Christ. So we took this heavenly, eternal perspective of Jesus. And as we talk this morning, I want you to keep that in mind, because the bigger, the bigger your view of Jesus, the more vast that you, you see him, the bigger perspective you have of who Jesus is, the eternal word, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Logos, the bigger your view of Jesus, the more amazing it is that he poured himself into our humanity. The more amazing it is that this Son of God, the Eternal Son, would empty himself, lower himself, debase himself to the point of filling up a human being, filling up a human body, becoming human, and entering into all the muck and the filth and the mire of our lives. It's an extraordinary thing. And that's what we're looking at this morning. So in the Apostles' Creed, there's quite a lengthy section that deals with the life of Jesus, goes through his virgin birth, his suffering under Pontius Pilate, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And obviously, any one of those could be a whole sermon. We could, we could take a message on each one of those events. But what I want to do this morning is try and wrap this up, try and look holistically at the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the significance of those things, the significance of his earthly life for our lives and our faith. As Christian believers. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, turn over there. We're going to spend most of our time this morning in just one verse of the Bible, but it's a very dense verse and there is a lot in it. Hebrews chapter 2, 17, and we start by looking at the humanity of Jesus. Let me read this verse to you. For this reason, he had to be made like them. That's us. Jesus had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. I remember when I was a teenager, I went and heard a Christian speaker, a guy that was over from Australia, and he was kind of a cross between a, an evangelist and a stand-up comedian. So he was preaching the gospel in a really funny way. And I, I, don't, I, I don't remember most of what he said, but one particular part of what he said has stayed with me through the years. He did this little sketch of what it would have been like for Jesus as a one-year-old. So what it was like, if you imagine Jesus, the one-year-old, Jesus learning to walk was what he was talking about. And his assumption was that Jesus, because he was God, already knew how to walk because he's God and God knows everything. But he didn't want to freak out Mary and Joseph. So he kind of played it down, and he didn't want to just suddenly be able to walk, so he kind of pretended to learn to walk. So he did this really funny thing, I won't try and do it, you know, where Jesus was like wobble, pretending to wobble over and constantly falling on the ground, but inside, in his head, he's going, this is ridiculous. 
I know exactly what I'm doing. I could walk out of this house right now. Why do I have to go along with a stupid game? It was quite funny. Uh, but it's interesting, as I've thought back about that, I've thought, you know, how does that square with this verse? How does that square with what the Bible says about Jesus' humanity? Because this verse says Jesus had to be made like us in every way. Do you catch those words? Really important. Jesus had to be made like us in every way. Not just a few ways, not just some ways, not just almost every way. He was made like us in every single way. And I think there's still a myth that persists in Christian circles where we see Jesus as basically just God with skin on. You know, the God and a bod myth. We just kind of see we, we imagine it like God kind of just poured himself into a human shell. So on the outside, it's Jesus the man, but if you peel back the flesh, he's just pure God on the inside. Just only God. Nothing really human going on on the inside, so he's still on the inside, all-knowing and the all-powerful deity. But on the, he just happens to have this human casing that he has to deal with for his earthly life. But when you come to passages like this that talk about the humanity of Jesus, the picture we get is not of God wrapped up in skin, but this picture of Jesus who took on the fullness of what it means to be human, the fullness of our humanity. And that means Jesus did not just take on a human body. He also took on a human nature. Now, he didn't take on our sinfulness. We need to be clear on that. He didn't take on our sinful state, but he took on our human nature. So God poured himself into a human person, and, and he didn't give up his God nature. He didn't give up his deity, his divinity, but he took on, in addition to his God nature, he took on the fullness of a human nature. So Jesus, through his earthly life, had two natures, the God nature and the human nature. And these two natures were so fused together they were perfectly united. It's not like these two natures that were pulling apart. They didn't contradict each other. They didn't separate. They didn't cancel each other out. They didn't negate each other out. They were perfectly fused together, the God nature, the human nature, but both were there in their entirety, fully God, fully human, indivisibly, inseparably linked. These two natures were inextricably bound up so that Jesus was the only being who has ever lived on earth who was both fully God and fully human. And the fully human part is really important. That's the part I think we're somehow in danger of losing today. We drift towards this view of Jesus as this kind of mythical figure who almost like floated above the ground. You know, he, he, we, we don't have enough of a view of an earthy, gritty, real-life Jesus. But Jesus was like us in every single way. So think about, for example, the night that Jesus was born. You know that Christmas carol, Away in a Manger? And kids love to sing it, but there's a couple of lines that really jar with me. It says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Now, why would someone write that line? Why would you think that Jesus, as a newborn baby, would not cry? If a, if, if, if a sheep woke him up, if a cow started chewing on the hay where he was asleep, why would you think that? Because... It's still operating in this paradigm of Jesus as kind of a perfect, pristine human being who maybe just had a human body, but really he was just God. But I imagine that if Jesus woke up as a newborn baby, he would have screamed his lungs out. He would have cried. Babies cry. Jesus was a baby. He was a baby 
in a, in a way like every other baby. He, he cried, he slept, he pooed. That's what he did as, as a baby. Might not be nice to think about God doing that, but that's what Jesus did. He might have had reflux. He might have been a colicky baby. Seriously, you've got to think about human experiences and then think Jesus was like that. There's no reason to think he wasn't. He was not this pristine child immune from all those sorts of things that other human beings experience. Apart from sin, he was absolutely and fully normally human. So he had to experience normal human growth and development. He didn't know how to walk. He had to learn, like you and I did, how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. It's amazing to think, hey, God, as a human being, had to learn how to form speech. The God who said, let there be light, had to learn to form syllables that became words that became speech. Jesus had to learn how to call his dad Abba. He had to learn how to call Joseph Abba, Father. He had to learn. He didn't just innately know that. He had to learn these things. Jesus was a normal kid at school, may not have been the brightest, may not have been the fastest, may not have been the best looking, may not have been the most popular. He was a normal kid. And he had, yes, he was fully God. I want to take away from that. But he was a normal human being and he had normal human experiences. He had a human mind, he had a human heart, and he had a human body. His parents had to teach him how to pray. He didn't just innately know that. His parents had to teach him. Imagine teaching God how to pray to God. His parents had to teach him how to pray to God. They had to teach him how to read, including how to read the Scriptures, how to read the Old Testament Scriptures. I would even argue that Jesus, as a, as a, certainly as a baby, even as a young child, didn't know that he was God. Why would he have suddenly known? I think by the time of his public ministry, he certainly did, because Jesus makes these statements in the Gospel of John, I and the Father are one. He knew. But that doesn't mean he started off knowing. Somehow through the witness of the Spirit in his own heart, he knew over time the, the vocation that he was called to and his identity became clearer and clearer. But just as he had to develop in normal human terms, he had to go through normal spiritual development. And that included a raising awareness of his own God identity, his own identity within God's redemptive story. Jesus had to learn, he had to grow, he had to develop as a normal human being. So in the, in, the, in the history of the church, people just tend to swing to these extremes. Either we play up the divinity of Jesus at the expense of his humanity, or we play up the humanity at the expense of his divinity. And I think at this moment, somehow in the Western church, we are drifting towards the playing up his divinity at the expense of his humanity. We're downplaying the humanity of Jesus, and we shouldn't. We've got to come back to this verse. He was like us in every way. Think about what that means. Think of some human experiences, some human functions. Jesus was like us in every way. It's, it's gritty. It's real life stuff. He was a real man, and we've got to get used to that. If he wasn't, he can't save us. If he wasn't like us in every way, he could never save us. Whatever he didn't take on, he could never redeem. He had to be made like us in every way. He had to be made like us, Hebrews says, for this purpose. Look at the next part of the verse. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So the, the role that Jesus has as this unique God-man through his life is that he is a high priest. 
And without getting into all the technicalities of what a high priest is, the primary role of a priest is a representative. The primary role of a priest is to represent God to human beings, to represent human beings to God. That was the role of Jesus through his earthly life as the God-man. He represented God to us, and he represented us to God. And this is not just something Jesus did at his death. We tend to go straight to the cross with this stuff. But this is something Jesus did right throughout his earthly life. Through the 10 or 15 years he spent as a tradesman, through the three years of his public ministry, right throughout his life, through his childhood, he was our representative before God. Part of that, I think, is easy enough to understand that Jesus represents God to us. So he represents who God is to us. In him, we see the Father. Through Jesus, we know what God is like. We see God and we see God's plans. But the other part, I think, is harder. It's trickier to get your head around. How does Jesus represent us to God? How does he do that through his earthly life? Because constantly, through his life, he was representing our lives to God. He was offering our lives back up to God as he went right throughout his earthly life. So let me try out a little metaphor here. I don't know whether this is going to work. This might crash and burn. But let's see. I don't know whether many of you are into video gaming. I'm not a big video gamer. There's one game that we have which I quite like, Mario Kart. Any Mario Kart fans on the Nintendo Wii? So we've got Mario Kart. It's a little cartoon game, you know, and you've got Mario and Luigi and all these other characters racing around the track in their little cartoon cars and they're bumping each other off the track and it's quite fun and our boys love it and I secretly love it too. So Mario Kart, now as you probably know, in any video game you have your on-screen character is your avatar. Am I right so far? You gamers can correct me later. Your on-screen character is your avatar and your avatar are you. They are you in the game. So in Mario Kart you can create an avatar. You can create an avatar that looks like you. I created a me. I created me. This is already sounding weird. I created a me in the game. I even put a little mole on his face so he looked like me. So there's a little me in Mario Kart that I can choose as my avatar and the little me with a little mole on his face goes around the track and that's me. And so his points are my points and when he wins I win and obviously when he loses I lose. That's what avatars are like. Now in a loose kind of way maybe we could think of Jesus as our avatar. Does that work? Jesus as our avatar. When Jesus lives, he is us in the game of life. Throughout his earthly life, he's our representative. He is us. He is living out. His points are our points. His successes are our successes. His victories are our victories. Everything he's earning and clocking up before the Father all comes to us. With one big difference, we don't control that avatar. In the video game, you control your avatar. You don't control Jesus. Jesus acts on his own behalf. But even so, this is maybe like watching a demo on a video game where your avatar is going through this race and they're clocking up points, but the points really are being credited to you. Right throughout his life, Jesus is living this life of faithfulness before God and it's all flowing to us. All that obedience is flowing to us because he is representing us as our avatar. All of his faithfulness to God is, is being credited to our account. All of his holiness is being added to our score, so to speak. All of his righteousness before God is all coming to us because he is us throughout his earthly life. He is living the life we could never live. But he's doing it on our behalf and he's giving us that life when we belong to Jesus. So that's one way of thinking about the earthly life of Jesus, that he is our avatar and that his points are our points and he represents us in this, in this game of life. I think it makes real significance of the life of Jesus not just his death, but he's doing this right throughout his 
his earthly life. Sometimes we get this way of thinking that the only reason Jesus came to earth was to die. It's just the only reason. It was just straight to the cross. But that kind of it makes, makes the first 33 years pretty meaningless. Unless you get this idea of Jesus representing us all the way through his life. I'll give you one example of how this worked in his life. So there was the time in uh, Jesus' life after he'd been baptized, he goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And he experiences these three temptations. And each time he rebuffs the devil, refuses to succumb to that temptation, but he uses scripture and he remains faithful to God, the faithful son of God, rather than succumbing to the devil. Now, when he is doing that, when Jesus is rebuking and rebuffing the devil like that, his victory over Satan becomes our victory over Satan. So that passage is not about how you and I can defeat temptation in our lives. That passage is about how Jesus has done what you and I could never do. We don't have the strength to stand against Satan and his power, but Jesus does, and Jesus did, and we receive the benefit of that. Jesus' victory over Satan in the wilderness becomes your victory over Satan in your life when you accept Christ by faith. All of what he has done flows to us. All of what he has earned flows to us. All the benefits of who he was all flow to us, not because we've done it, not because we've earned it, not because there's anything deserving of us at all, but simply because he has lived a holy life on our behalf and he hands it to us as our representative, as our high priest, as our avatar. So this is a way of keeping in view the significance of Jesus' earthly life. He didn't just die for us, he also lived for us. And he gave us the life that we could never have lived ourselves. Now, all this takes us to the cross, and the cross is vitally important. I didn't want to start there, but this is where the story goes, that Jesus not only lives for us, but then on the cross he is crucified for us. This is why Hebrews 2.17 at the end of this verse says, he was a faithful high priest in service to God that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. That word atonement, it's a word that we use to describe primarily what Jesus has done on the cross. The best way to think about the word atonement is just to break down the English word uh, and think of it as at one meant. Atonement, at one meant. Jesus through his death has made us at one with God. He has reconciled us to God. That's what his death has done. He's atoned for our sins and he has brought us peace with God. Now, how did Jesus do that? Well, when you think about his death, think about it in the same way that you think about his life, just as through Jesus' life, he was our representative constantly. In his death, he was also our representative, except in a slightly different way. Through his life, Jesus represents us by giving something to us. He's giving us his holiness. He's giving us his obedience. He's giving us his righteousness. He's giving us his faithfulness. But in his death, he represents us by taking something from us, by taking our sin. In his death, Jesus deals with our failure. He deals with the problem of our sin before God. Because it's one thing for Jesus to have these successes, these victories, to, in a sense, earn these points, if you like, before God, to use that kind of crass terminology. But that doesn't deal with our losses. That doesn't deal with our failures, the fact that it's already game over for you and I. So on the cross, Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He represents us by becoming sin for us, becoming a curse for us. He takes all of our failure, all of our wrongdoing, all of our mistakes, all of our rebellion against God. He absorbs it within his own body on the cross. He doesn't just pay for it in, 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 in a transactional sense. 
He doesn't just do it as like a business deal. He absorbs it personally in his flesh on the cross. He absorbs all of our sin. Every way in which we have dishonored God in our lives, every way in which we've fallen short of the glory of the Father. And by the way, you probably only know 5% of the ways in which that's actually happened in your life. 95% of our sin is we're unaware of it. We're just doing things and thinking things and being things all the time that are falling short of the glory of God. You could only name 5% of your sin, but Jesus died for the whole hundred. Died for the whole lot. He absorbed it. All, of the, all the ways in which we are utterly selfish people, all our idolatries, all the ways we worship something that is not God, the things we give our lives to that are not God, money, ambition, power, sex, all these things that we worship other than God, maybe good things, but we make them God things. Jesus died for all of that, all our past mistakes, all our present failure, and all of our future stuff as well. All the sin you'll go out and commit this week and be still blissfully unaware of it. Jesus died for all that as well, all the ways in which we have violated our relationship with God and all the stuff that's been done to us as victims all the ways in which we've been hurt by others, wounded by others, shown a lack of love by others. Jesus has died for all of that. He's absorbed it within his own body. And as our representative, he has experienced the consequence, the judgment for those things on our behalf, which is death. God the Father poured out his judgment on Jesus on the cross because he was our representative. He stood in our place and he died in our place. He experienced death, spiritual death, Alienated from God, physical death, ultimate sign of our human mortality and the sign of the curse. Jesus took it upon himself so that we would not have to carry the consequences of our own sin. And that's why Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace fell upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus stood in our place. He died as our proxy before God. He died in our stead as our representative. And that stands as the absolute foundation, cornerstone of the entire Christian faith. That through his life and his death, Jesus had done what we cannot do for ourselves. Pay for our sin, our grievous and hideous sin before God. Now, as you carry the story on through from Jesus' life, through his death, the next question, and this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but it's a really fun rabbit trail. Where did Jesus go after he died? And I ask that question because it's relevant to the Apostles' Creed. Where did Jesus go? Where was Jesus on Easter Sunday? Uh, Saturday, sorry. Where was Jesus on the Saturday between the Friday he died and the Sunday he rose again? Where was he on the Saturday? Now, the Apostles' Creed, the original wording of the Creed, said that Jesus descended to hell and that Jesus spent the time between Good Friday and Easter Sunday in hell, experiencing hell on our behalf. And there's been a school of thought in the church right through the centuries that that's what happened and Jesus experienced hell because we would have experienced hell if it wasn't for him. But in fact, there's nothing in the Bible itself that suggests that. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests Jesus went to hell or that he needed to go to hell in order to pay for our sin and atone for our sin. In fact, Jesus himself says the opposite. You remember what he said to the thief on the cross? When the thief said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. That doesn't sound like hell. Paradise. That sounds like heaven. That's where Jesus went after he died. He went to heaven. So did the thief. 
paradise, right? I don't, Jesus wasn't making stuff up. That's where he went. That's where he said he was going. Thank goodness he said those words. Now we know. He was in heaven. So Jesus ascended to heaven and he presented the sacrifice of his own blood to the Father in heaven. The sacrifice that he had made for us on the cross. He appeared before the Father, as it were, in the throne room of heaven and presented that offering and said, this is my sacrifice for the sin of all humanity. And the Father accepted that sacrifice and said, yes, I, I accept it on behalf of all people who have ever lived. Your sacrifice, Jesus, is sufficient, once for all sufficient sacrifice for human sin and rebellion. The Father accepted that. And so therefore, on the third day, that Sunday morning, Jesus came back to earth. He refilled that human person and that body that was lying in the grave. Jesus again inhabited that body with a full God nature and a full human nature and he was raised from the dead by the power of God on the third day. So he still had the body, still had our human nature, still had the nature of God, but he had a pretty transformed body and we'll talk about that in the last session. And Jesus was resurrected. And when he was resurrected, he was still our representative. You've got to carry this idea of the representative all the way through. He was our representative in his life. He was our representative in his death. He was our representative in his resurrection. So just as Jesus was raised from the dead, if he's our avatar, right? Those of you that are still tracking with that analogy, if he's our avatar, then when he was raised from the dead, we were raised from the dead. But that was us. That, that great victory over sin and death that happened on Easter Sunday morning, that's ours now. That's why in the New Testament, time and time and time again, you find the authors saying stuff like, we were raised with Christ. Not just Jesus was raised, not just even that Jesus was raised for me, but you were raised with Christ. That's why Paul says, now that you've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. You've been raised with Christ and your life is now hidden with him. In God. See, we have this identification, this solidarity with Jesus, which is so strong that his life is our life, his death is our death, his resurrection is our resurrection. Just as Jesus was raised physically, bodily from the dead on Easter Sunday, we're raised to new spiritual life when we love and follow Jesus and give our lives to him. We are raised to new life. We're transformed. We receive a new identity, new heart, new spirit, such a transformation that Jesus described it as being born again. Or born from above, we receive a whole new identity and one day we will get the new body. Not yet. That's coming. And we'll deal with that in the final session. But one day we'll receive a new body, just like Jesus as well. But for now, we're made new on the inside. We have a whole new identity. We've lived with Christ. We've died with Christ. We've been raised again with Christ. And because of the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, we now receive that precious, precious gift that the Bible describes as the forgiveness of sins. And that phrase appears in the Apostles' Creed as well, a little bit further down, but it's there. I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. And now's the time to mention that because it is so connected to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's because of the work of Christ doing for us what we could never do for ourselves that we've received this amazing gift that we always take for granted and yet should blow us away every time, forgiveness. Unbelievable to be washed and cleansed of everything that displeases God in our lives, past, present, future, just erased, thrown as far as the east is from the west, removed from us completely. So we never have to deal with the consequences of it. It's an amazing gift. And as I thought about the forgiveness of sins, 
that's come into my life through Jesus as I was preparing this message. My mind went back again, interestingly enough, to the parable of the prodigal son that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. And just dwelling on that image of, of the son kneeling before the father. And, and there's a dimension of that story. There's a dimension of the prodigal son story that we didn't deal with. We talked about God the father. But I think it's fair to say that it's not just that you and I are the prodigal sons and daughters. It's also that Jesus became the prodigal son for us. That Jesus left his father's home in heaven and went to the far country. Now, he didn't do it out of disobedience. He did it out of sheer obedience. But still, he left his father's home in heaven and he went to the far country, as it were, came to earth, and he became destitute. And he took on our poverty. And he took on our lowly state. And he was abandoned by family, by friends. And that picture of the prodigal son eating the pig food, eating the filth, I think represents that lowly place that Jesus allowed himself to, de to be debased to, the lowest of our human experiences, even to the point of death. And then, having died for us, Jesus, just like the prodigal son, returns to the Father. But he returns to the Father in heaven. And because he's our representative, he carries us to the Father. That's the only reason you and I can kneel before the Father as his prodigal children and receive forgiveness. You think we can do that on our own? You think we are worthy to be in the presence of God and even ask for that gift of forgiveness? We only get to the Father because Jesus carries us home. We can only come to the Father because Jesus returns us. You can imagine him like the prodigal son carrying us back to the Father as these lost and broken and wounded children of the Father. And he lays us at the feet of the Father so that the Father can lay his hands on our shoulders and say to us the words he said to the prodigal son, My son, my daughter, you were lost, but now you're alive. You were lost, but you're found. You were dead, but now you are alive. Bring the ring, bring the robe, bring the shoes, kill the calf, let's eat, let's celebrate, let's feast. My son, my daughter is home. We hear those words of forgiveness spoken over our lives only because of Jesus. Not because one day you and I made a choice to return home. We did, but we could never get there ourselves. Could never even begin the journey ourselves. The only reason that we can make it to the Father is because Jesus carries us there, lays us before the Father, so we can hear words of forgiveness, words of blessing spoken over our lives. I just want to encourage you and ask you today that if you've never received that gift of forgiveness, open your heart to it. Open your heart to the forgiveness of God. It's a free gift. You can't earn it. You'll never deserve it. You can only receive it. But you have to receive it, like any gift. You have to reach out and receive this gift into your life. If you've never done that, never been cleansed from your sin, today's the day. Don't wait any longer. Don't muck around with it. Don't squeeze it out of your mind. Receive it. Open your heart to it. Open your life to it. And for those of us who have received this forgiveness of sins in our life, it's still possible, isn't it, I know, to live with a lot of guilt and shame because we struggle to forgive ourselves. And even though we know we're forgiven by God and our heads go, yes, 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 in our lives we still really struggle to experience and apply the forgiveness of God. Most of the time because we get in the way, we just can't look past our own stuff. So we live in guilt and we live in shame and we live in self-pity. Today's the day to be set free from that. Today is the day to recognize again that because of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, your identity is now in him. Your identity is swallowed up in the perfect son of God. His obedience is yours. 
When the Father looks at you, He just sees Jesus. That's all He sees. Just sees the purity and the holiness of His own Son because your identity is in Christ. You've got to remember that on your worst days when we absolutely mess up. And we've got to remember it on our best days when we are tempted to believe that somehow we are here by our own doing or that we have contributed anything to this miracle called forgiveness. It's all because of Jesus. Let's allow God's gift of forgiveness to chip away at the guilt and the shame that persists. And the evil one loves to get in there and continue to convince us that it can't possibly be true. We need to say in faith, I am the prodigal son. I am the prodigal daughter, and I'm forgiven by the Father. Not because of me, but all because of Jesus. We need to keep coming back to it. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself every day and allow God to renew his forgiveness in your life. His mercies are new every morning. Let's pray as we enter into communion. Just allow God to just bathe us in his forgiveness again. Father God, we really seek that fresh awareness of your forgiveness. We want to acknowledge, God, that this is, this is a, an accomplished fact. That those of us in this room now who have united our lives to you, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. But God, we struggle to know that and we struggle to experience it. And so often we, just, we still get so weighed down by our own broken stuff, the rubbish in our lives, the constant selfishness. We just keep going back to the pig food time and time and time. It gets like we prefer it to your grace. But God, we want to just ask this morning that you just refresh our awareness of your grace in our lives. Just refresh your mercy in our lives. Just refresh your forgiveness. Just help us to know more deeply than we ever have before that we are truly free from our sin. We're truly free. We've been set free. We are redeemed. We are not who we used to be. Thank you for that, Jesus. May we live in that freedom. We know the evil one is going to try and steal that away the minute we walk out these doors. But Jesus, by faith in you, keep our hearts close. Keep us planted so deeply in your grace. Thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.